welcome to Voices of Baby Loss, presented by me, Caroline Verdon. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and Jen Coates, who is the Director of Bereavement Support and Volunteering at SANS. SANS is a UK-based charity whose purpose is to save babies' lives and support bereaved families. We also aim to give a voice to parents who've been touched by pregnancy and baby loss. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SANS Charity and on Twitter at SANS UK. Which is also where you can get in touch with us if you'd like to comment on or get involved in the podcast. We are both touched by baby loss and so this topic is really close to our hearts. Coming up on this week's episode. 98% of pregnant women will take some sort of medication in pregnancy. Yet only 2% of our drugs have information on safety or efficacy in pregnancy. If you have two people that email an MP every week, that's one thing. But if you have 100 people in a constituency that email on the same subject, your MP will sit up and listen. Absolutely, they will. Thank you for joining us for episode three. So this episode looks at the other side of SANS and the work that SANS does to improve care and safety of parents and babies, as well as the work that it does to save babies' lives. This is a whole arm of SANS that is something that I was completely oblivious to. And I think that's because I arrived at SANS needing help and support and I took that help and support. And then over time, you kind of learn to live with with your own grief. And sometimes it can feel like it's a bit painful to go back and to revisit things. And I think that's my story. And I think that's similar to so many people. But learning just by doing this podcast about the different things that SANS does to make changes feels so empowering. I'm so glad you say that. Um, I think for many, many parents, I guess it starts with understanding why their baby died, and then maybe getting more involved in that, either in maternity voices partnerships to change care at the hospital, to have a voice in the hospital, um, but also maybe to be a parent voice in a research project, um, because that's so vital to have that parent voice. But I didn't even realise that parent voice was a thing. I didn't, I didn't know that this was something that hospitals were interested in that SANS collectively are interested in, that researchers are interested in, in actually speaking to parents and finding out about their experiences. And I suppose it makes sense, but it just hadn't occurred to me. Mm, I think it's really important, not just because it's it's very empowering from a parent perspective to be able to share your story if that's what you want to do, but also um, just thinking about sudden infant death, what was called cop death, the single thing that made the difference in finding out about putting babies to sleep on their back was listening to parents' stories about the situation before their baby died. Wow. I didn't know that. I mean, I I know about put your baby to sleep on its back. And that's what we did with, you know, our other two, Arthur and Fred. But I've never really given much thought to why that's what we should do. I I guess I just presumed that it was probably information gained through post-mortems or something like that. I never thought that it would have been something that cropped up many times in conversation that could then lead to the changes. And I mean, I guess it makes sense. That's kind of blown my mind a bit, how important these conversations are and the differences that they can make. Yeah, they they really are. And 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 if you think about it, the, the 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 mother is the person that has that continuous journey and continuous knowledge of every step of the pregnancy, every appointment, you know, they're the common denominator. I mean, it's logical and very obvious, but 
I think we haven't maybe thought about it enough in, in years gone by that that voice is so important because they join all of the dots throughout the journey. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. It's just It just never occurred to me. Uh, one of the people who is really leading the way when it comes to baby loss research is Professor Sarah Stock. And she is a consultant obstetrician and she's also a researcher. And she's also a trustee of SANS. And we caught up with her the other day and we started off by asking her about some of the research projects that she's been involved in. One project is looking at how factors in the environment, so things like air pollution, changes in weather even, might affect pregnancy and therefore stillbirth and preterm birth. And does it? That's fascinating. So this also stems from work. So this this works underway, but it stems from some work that an Australian research fellow came over to do. I always laugh that you have to have an Australian to come over and look at sunshine in pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) Come to Scotland to research sunshine. But that's what she did. And part of that is this sort of idea that environmental ultraviolet exposure, environmental and ultraviolet light exposure, which is sunshine (laughs) here, um, we know that in, it can affect blood pressure problems, for example, uh, in non-pregnant people. It can affect blood pressure. It has an effect on cardiac disease. So we wondered if it has an effect on pregnancy. So we did a couple of really sort of preliminary studies. And one of the things we showed that the amount of sunshine you're exposed to relates to how long you're pregnant. So preterm birth is more likely if you have less environmental UV exposure in early That's pregnancy. Fascinating. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, it's really interesting, isn't it? So we've got, so we're tr- doing some more work in this area, really, to to try and, and understand that better. And some of that's got to be mechanistic work. So that's understanding how, you know, it's an interest, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's really compelling, yeah. but it's a, how does it work? And also, you know, could you sort of use this as treatments? Is there potential that you can use light or public health advice about buildings and light and uh, outdoor exposure to do this. And I laugh about the Australian coming over. She couldn't do that there because there's not much variation in sunshine. And Uh. also because she wouldn't get the ethical approval because they're really worried about sunshine as a negative health. Effects, but in Scotland we sort of see well. There's got to be a balance here. So that is some interesting work that we did, uh, and we're building on that. So a colleague has been funded by Sands. So that's a sort of very specific example. I've been sort of involved more generally in that I sit on one of the panels, which which helps review research projects and and decide what research is done. So that's a variety of projects that are, um, are run from Sands, and some of that involves looking at bereavement care, some of it involves in looking at improving care or or the safety in maternity services, some of it involving other people in research, and some of it's very basic science, laboratory discovery science, trying to understand these fundamental questions of of why can there be problems with the placenta, why are there growth growth problems with babies, why does preterm birth happen, and why do babies die in the womb? So some of these questions that we really need to understand what are the mechanisms, what what can lead to it so we can get better treatments. Gosh, this work is so important. I mean, for, for me, I came to SANS for support and for help. And at that time, those research tabs on the website, they were not things I was looking at. I was, as everyone is, you know, I, I was a mess. And as time has gone on and grief changes and you start to find a way through, those kind of areas have become more interesting to me. And I find it fascinating, all of the extra work that is being done, not just to support parents today, but to actually change the outcomes for parents of tomorrow. 
Yeah, it's so important. And I think where sands are key is, and they really punch above their weight here, is their influence on policy and their influence on research and researchers. So although you know they might be giving relatively small amounts, those amounts can be leveraged into bigger projects. And it's really important that this kind of research goes on because stillbirth is still really underfunded. We still don't talk about stillbirth. We don't talk about it enough in research. And therefore, people don't research it enough. I got some interesting figures I, I've been looking at um, in terms of some work we're doing. And if we think about the research spend in the United States, so they have a National Institute for Health. And in the past 15 years, they've spent $28 billion researching childhood cancers. Of course, that is important. But if you compare that to how much has been spent on stillbirth research, it's 10 million. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. And yet the number of stillbirths in the States each year has not changed. It's around 12,000 a year, as opposed to about 1,000 childhood cancer deaths. So the scale of the problem is massive, but we don't invest in the research for it. And I think we need these new sort of focused research focusing on stillbirth because it's unacceptable. It's really stark, isn't it, when you think about it compared to childhood cancers. And somehow it's easier to talk about something that affects a child who is alive, maybe. So it's more acceptable, more appealing um, than to pump lots of funding into into it, um, as opposed to thinking about the fact that if we did pump lots of money into research, we could prevent so many babies dying. Yeah, I think it, you know every child death's a tragedy, but we can we can talk and focus more once a baby dies after birth or in childhood than we can on focusing on when a child dies in the womb. And I think that sons are very influential in getting that message across and and then trying to destigmatize talking about stillbirth and saying it's a problem that we need to have solutions for. Can parents get involved in any element of this? Yeah, so we think parent involvement in research is key, or I think parent involvement in research is key. Sons do as well. And I don't think there's really any form of research that can't be improved with some parental engagement. And that's at the stage of sort of thinking about studies, thinking about what's important, setting the research agenda, that's got to be parent-driven or certainly co-created with parents, doesn't it? But then certainly if it's it's studies working with pregnant women, advice from parents is really important when you're designing those studies or trials, how we communicate parent-facing information, how we might find participants for research and, and, and let people know about it. All of these things that can be helped from parents' point of view. And that goes right through the research process to how we interpret and present results and disseminate those results. Because it's not about just getting results in a journal. It's about getting the results into practice. And parents can be really key in doing that and understand that, you know, help us get those messages to parents and to caregivers as well to ensure that that's what we we want to be trying to do is closing that loop. And that is difficult, but I think that parents can be involved at all stages. That's really interesting that you say that because I suppose I'd always had this box it off. You know, we lost our child, we have the grief to deal with, that's the end of that, as opposed to actually there's more work that can be done with our experiences. I I think 
you bring a perspective and you bring your experience and and that's important um it's important to be able to talk about it it's important for clinicians and researchers to be able to talk about it, it it's important for the story telling aspect to bring people to understand the emotion of it because then they're more invested in what they're doing and it's important to ensure that the research we do and the way we communicate it is sensitive to parents i think my language has changed from working with sans um i hope in a good way (laughs) (laughs) suddenly there's expletives everywhere (laughs) but i think that there is that as well that that comes from talking to bereaved parents not talking about them, I think. When you were talking about parent involvement, Sarah, um, it's so important as part of that legacy for parents too to be involved, isn't it? It's something really positive and meaningful um, for them and their bereavement journey as well to be involved in research and to feel like they can make a difference in in memory of their baby too. Yeah, I I think it can be. And, you know, I don't think it's for everybody, but I think that for some people it is a really important part of that and I think for some people, it's a key part of that. So supporting research becomes part of the journey through bereavement. It makes me feel quite excited. Like Alex can make a difference. Do you know what I mean? Like, actually, there's another role to play. Yeah. I, I, and I think there's plenty of room <laughs> for people if they want to become involved. And I think doing that through Sands is a, is a really good way. I think it can be hard work. And I think often we're coming to, to parents who are busy and have other responsibilities and are managing grief as well. And so it is, it is a commitment. And so there's plenty of space, I think is the thing to say. And um, so that we can, uh, you know, um, we want to expand the research and we want to expand that meaningful engagement with parents. So I, I, I think there's room. And how do you think it's changed you, Sarah? You said it had changed your language. Has How has it changed you in other ways? I think it, in some ways it's changed how I do research actually engaging with parents. I think I started this as a very much as it was a problem and an intellectual problem that could be solved. I, in some ways, I, I still am drawn to the intellectual challenge of the fact that we have so many unknowns and it seems so fundamental to me that is there but I have much more of an emotional connection and much more of an understanding much more of a broader wider picture that it's not just this intellectual problem or one scientific area it's much broader than that and the context and the the implications more broadly are, are much more clear to me. And when you say even on a level of just the words that you're using, what what differences, what examples can you give of differences? I think I talk about babies much more. I think I'm more upfront about talking about babies that die. I think I mention names. I mention the names of babies. I, I bring that into some of my research presentations as well. And I bring the stories in because I think that is so important so it's it's the way I talk it's also the way I think (laughs) I guess um about what I'm doing so it's not a placenta and a fetus and a, a pregnant woman and a gestational age and these words that I think about when I I think sort of scientifically about the problem it's also about it's a baby and a mother or parents and I think that that is is a sort of change in in how I 
view my work. And that's huge. That's really quite a, a fundamental shift. Yes, I, th- I think it is a fundamental shift. It's, I, I think it is a fundamental shift. And I think when we think about research and, and science, it's it can feel quite narrow. You know, I think both as a scientist, I can try and reduce things to the problem and think about things in a certain way. But I think recognising the bigger picture is really important. And I think it's also really important for communication of our research and results and for getting other people involved in this. Because unless we can understand the problem as a whole, we're not going to understand the problem in the small scale. And with the work that, you know, either you've done yourself with SANS or other work that you have seen SANS do in this area, have you seen changes made in the real world? I think we've still got a long way to go in research. So I think one of the problems is this sort of really focused approach that we can have. So I think I think in terms of some of the work that SANS has done, yes, we've seen changes, but the changes are, are mainly about practice and policy. I think in terms of where I see the big questions are is how do we get better at predicting stillbirth, identifying babies that are vulnerable and being able to change, have treatment options for women. And that is a really big sticky problem. And I think that's where there has been a lack of focus and direction worldwide about this. And I think that you know, it's not going to be solved by one research project, as it were. But that's what's needed to then allow us to have more options. That's sort of a long-winded way of answering. I think there's things we can do now, but they tend to be about, you know, where we are now with our knowledge. But we need to have an expansion of that fundamental knowledge to really change things. Because if we think about how many medications there are for people with blood pressure or how many different treatment options there are for people, and we think about what we have in pregnancy, and it's so little, <laughs> it's so little, that that's where what we need is we need a, um, you know, an investment at all levels to understand what's some of the causes of stillbirth, how we can better predict and prevent stillbirth and have a range of treatment options. And I think that's going to take some time, but I think that's where we, we need to start building. That's really interesting. I've never thought about it in terms of the medications and how many are available when you're not pregnant compared to the number that available when you are. And I've always just presumed, oh, is that because they're not safe? But I, I guess it's because they're not tested. because we haven't looked. It's because wow. we haven't looked. I, I, there's some amazing statistics. I, I find them jaw-dropping. So the more I learn about this, the more I get really angry. <laughs> so sorry if I start ranting about um, <laughs> some of the inequalities here. But 98% of pregnant women will take some sort of me- medication in pregnancy, yet only 2% of our drugs have information on safety or efficacy in pregnancy. I mean, that's just crazy. There have only ever been two drugs developed for pregnant women, ever. What? And if we think of, we know the scale of stillbirth, we know the scale of maternal deaths globally and and neonatal deaths, and yet this sort of complete disconnect with the scale of the problem and yet the investment to try and change it. I, I mean, I think there are some really exciting things happening. And, you know, SANS have been involved in some of these. There's, there's recognition of a need for medicines in pregnancy. 
those women's health plans or women's health strategy, it's starting to recognise that women as a whole have been excluded. There's a gender health gap, but particularly pregnant women have been excluded from that. And with the best intentions, but it's really not done us much good, I don't think. You know, we've got to realise that actually because it's hard or we don't want to cause harm, of course we want to be safe, all of these things means that there's a tendency to do nothing. And of course, that doesn't help because pregnant women can become ill with any of the diseases you can have out with pregnancy. Plus, there are specific pregnancy problems for mothers and babies. And it can't be so difficult to be looking at these and addressing these and trying to offer real treatments for them, rather than us relying on a few medications from, you know, half a century ago. That's crazy when you put it like that. Absolutely crazy. I, I mean, I and I feel that you know, think about you think about nausea and pregnancy drugs, and then women who have hyperemesis. Really, really, we just use drugs that are used out with pregnancy. Antibiotics. We don't know whether they get, you know, they're the same. They're as effective in pregnancy because the body changes so much in pregnancy, and yet these really sort of fundamental questions aren't there. And that's it's not because we couldn't look at some of those. It's because we haven't. Wow. So how can we help this happen? You know, on an, on an individual level or, you know, on a, on a wider level, what can we do? Well, I mean, I've taken to shouting about it as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure it's very effective. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think there's something about getting this into the consciousness. I think as an obstetrician and as a you know pregnancy researcher, I'm become more and more aware of it. It doesn't become any less shocking to me, but I've become more aware of it. But even within, say, the medical profession, if I speak to other doctors in other fields, they'll say, "Oh, you can't do that on pregnant women. You can't. You can't have a clinical trial involving pregnant women." And I sort of think, "Well, could you women don't lose their ability." to choose when they're pregnant or make decisions or assess at any other time than they would from any other research. Um, and also it's making sure that we count pregnant women, that we record things that happen so we can do things with data that's there, that we can use information from women who do take treatments and follow them up and find out what happens. You know, we can actually do some joined up uh, work with following up children. These sort of things are there. So I think it, it's really sort of, it's pressure at all levels, but it's getting researchers interested, saying that this is, this is difficult, but challenging. Challenging is fun, right? <laughs> we, uh, there's lots of unknowns here. There's a lot, you know, think of the good that can become of this because it's quite a low bar to start from. Um, uh, it's also sort of, you know, getting women, their husbands, families aware of these so that they can point it out. And we need policy change. I think there's an absolute need for policy change. There's a need for industry to change. So, you know, this risk averse from pharmaceutical industries or, or universities that say that these problems are just, we've got to face up to them. Yes, they might be difficult, but we can't just ignore this because women and children are dying because of this. And I think for me, the biggest example of that was in COVID vaccination. Pregnant women were excluded from trials and we're still trying to catch up with the confidence in vaccinations. Yet we know that COVID-19 is 
more severe in pregnant women than women who are not pregnant. Remember, Sarah, you talking about the numbers of women in intensive care and a sort of second wave of COVID. I suppose I've been wondering since that conversation whether that has stabilised, you know, whether that's when the numbers have reduced. Well, I think I think numbers have reduced and I, I think there's some good news. And I think that we recognise that Omicron, so Omicron variant, which is uh, most prevalent now, is probably less severe than Delta variant, which was particularly severe. Um, having said that, the numbers of Omicron are still really high. <laughs> And it might be less severe, but the numbers are high enough that that can still be problematic. I think what's important and you know what we're thinking here about messaging in, in Scotland and some of the research I do with Public Health Scotland is that we're going into autumn booster season now. And again, we recognise that pregnant women are vulnerable to severe COVID-19. And the message that we want to give is that if you're invited for a booster or you're eligible for a booster, if you're thinking about becoming pregnant or are pregnant at any stage, the best way to protect yourself and your baby from complications of COVID-19 is to have the booster. And there's no evidence at all from UK or any other country that COVID-19 vaccination is at all is associated with any complications from mothers or babies, other than you'd get out with pregnancy, i.e. You know, a sore arm and a mild fever. You know, short self-limiting complication rates are similar in pregnancy to non-pregnancy, but there's no evidence at all in particular of harm to mothers or babies. And I suppose now, I know you were saying, obviously, pregnant women weren't included in the trials, but I suppose now you're able to look at data of women who have had the vaccine and were pregnant at the time and that's how you're able to kind of come to that conclusion. Would that be right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So um, some of the work we've been doing, we're lucky in Scotland with data is we've, so we've got a whole population. So everybody in Scotland's data and whole pregnancy data. So this has been really important to us because often studies in pregnancy are only done when you get to a certain stage in pregnancy. Whereas actually what we've been able to do is look at miscarriages and early pregnancy losses right through to all births and, and, and live births and neonatal deaths. And we will be able to follow up children as well. But using this data to look at both the effects of COVID-19 itself in pregnancy and then look at the safety of vaccines. And everything we've looked at in Scotland has been really reassuring. And that's backed up by data from the whole UK uh, and also you know United States worldwide. Now much more data coming in and all of that has been reassuring regarding the safety of vaccination prior to in the early stages or at any stage of pregnancy. So what does the future look like? What's the next research project that you're working on? I've just taken a new role, which is through Welcome Leap, which are a not-for-profit who's aimed to bring health breakthroughs. And I am directing a program which aims to find new ways to look at, at pregnancy to model gestation with a view to reducing stillbirth by half within three years. Wow. That feels like I'm going to be busy. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> In a good way. And I, it is. I mean, it's really exciting. It's bringing researchers from around the world together to focus on this problem of stillbirth. It's a big aim, but it's such an important one. It's huge. It's, it's, huge. it's gigantic. Is it, is it feasible? Where did the figure come from? The figure came from thinking uh, a lot and looking at data and seeing what we thought would be feasible and some analysis of the data. So it isn't a plucked from thin air. It's based on 
the fact that most stillbirths are potentially preventable by timely recognition of problems and delivery. And if we had predictors and markers and could identify women and their babies who are at risk and put our resources into those and recognizing these have to be new and scalable because this is a global problem, then we should be able to reduce stillbirth by half. So it's not a plucked out of thin air. It's, it's a big aim, but it's the potential to do that. And it's not saying that we will have done that, but what we can show is we've got the potential to do that, you know, tangible methods that might work. And so that's what I, that's, that's my ambition. Um, and it's a $50 million program. So it's a lot of funding focused on one problem and that problem is stillbirth. So for me, that's really exciting is bringing engineers, people from different disciplines to focus on stillbirth. And when you say bring people in from different disciplines, but is that so you could, you know, for example, you know, there's a change to the heart rate. Well, actually, you want a machine made that could monitor that better or something. Pretty much. Yes. As I see it, we want better windows to the into the womb. We want to be able to see what's happening. One of the things that struck me is if we think about what we do when a baby's born and those really basic checks we do is that how is the baby after birth? What's the heart rate? What's the breathing rate? What's the tone like? Is the baby pink and warm and well perfused? These are really simple things. What's changed in neonatal care, things like kangaroo care and skin to skin, really simple things that make huge differences. We don't have that in pregnancy because we don't have that way of looking at the baby. And if we could have ways where we're looking at the baby more frequently, more often, more continuously, looking at bringing in different kinds of data, different ways of looking at the oxygen in the baby or the blood flow in the baby or the uh, nutrient supply to the baby, these kind of things, we need new techniques to do that. But people are applying new techniques in a crazy way. If we think about, you know, our phones and our Fitbits, <laughs> how we can get yeah. data. Can we do that in pregnancy in a way that we can bring that together and say, okay, we can now recognize, properly recognize when there's a problem that's developing and chronic or indeed a, a sudden problem that we could have time to do something about to prevent a death. How fascinating. That's, that's just extraordinary. How amazing it must feel to be part of that. Yes, it is. It does feel amazing. And it's really exciting. It's early days. We're just bringing people together. So it'll be something to, you know, we'll watch this space one. But uh, it's it, it's a very exciting program um, from Welcome Leap. And I'm just really proud that this is about, it's called In Utero, and it's about stillbirth. And I do think, you know, I think I mentioned before about my change in speech and language and how I think about things. I do think that sounds have been a huge influence on me on this, which have affected me a taking this role, uh, getting this role and the way that we think about the programme. She's so inspiring. It's really quite joyful to think about all this work that is going on to make sure that there will be change in the future. Um, But then at the same time, it's really tragic to think how desperately this is needed. I mean, the statistics are awful. We know that 13 babies die every day shortly before, during or after birth. And we know that one in four pregnancies ends in loss. And there's an enormous amount of work going on to address this and to find out why this is happening. It's something 
that MP Sherilyn McCrory spoke about as well. She's a Conservative MP for Truro and Falmouth. And she co-chairs the Baby Loss All-Party Parliamentary Group, or the APPG. I, until I spoke to her, didn't think there was any point whatsoever in ever contacting my MP about my experiences with baby loss. I didn't realise that just pinging off an email during Baby Loss Awareness Week could make such a huge difference. It really does. And I think our campaigns over the last few years have really shown that. And if you're listening to this after Baby Loss Awareness Week, it's absolutely still worth messaging or contacting your MP to to raise awareness of the issues surrounding baby loss. It, it does make a difference and they do absolutely listen. So I co-chair with Jeremy Hunt, who used to be the health secretary. And so he has fabulous professional experience and contacts within the health service. And I have this real life experience. So hopefully between the two of us, we can continue to appeal to all parliamentarians who want to get involved and also means that we can put some very powerful asks together of government. And hopefully it means that we can actually do some good, which is what this whole thing is about. And why is it so important to have a baby loss APPG? Well, there's so much going on in Parliament that it's really easy to get snowblind by everything. And uh, an all-party parliamentary group is, is basically a, a way of filtering different interests that MPs have. So there's hundreds of them, absolutely hundreds of them. Some of them probably meet twice a year and don't do very much. Others do just fabulous work. And the key to it is, is it's cross-party. You cannot have an all-party group unless you've got cross-party uh, MPs and peers involved. And, and that's the key to it, because you have very sensible conversations with people who aren't in your political party. You might not have anything to do with them in normal times in Parliament, but actually you can sit around and talk about the subject you're all passionate about and put together asks, listen to industry experts, listen to people's experiences, listen to lobby groups and put together a, a series of asks. And if you write to ministers and engage with ministers and actually ministers come and talk to all party groups as well it just means that you can have a collective voice and actually the ministers start to listen because they say well this is what parliament wants rather than this is what my set of MPs want or that set of MPs want and I think if you can galvanize lots of different lobby groups and lots of different MPs and peers into one voice then it becomes a very powerful voice and I think this is where the baby loss APPG in particular, is so powerful. So in the two and a half years that I've been an MP, the baby loss awareness debates have been what I think is the best of Parliament. So parliamentarians from across the chamber supporting each other, showing kindness and compassion to each other. It's not what we normally see on the news, actually. And I wish we could see more of it because it does happen in lots of other ways. But I think when you see baby loss in particular, it's such a universal issue. It happens to more people, more families than I think people care to realise. And I know colleagues who have lost a baby 20 or more years ago and have been MPs longer than I have and are still still don't want to talk about it because it means too much to them, but they might attend the debate or they'll watch it back or they'll share it with their constituents. Um, it means a lot to a lot of people on the parliamentary estate. Now, in terms of that debate, obviously this year is slightly different because of everything else that is going on in the world and because of the passing of the Queen, that you know, the debate's a bit up in the air. But usually that debate takes place every year during Baby Loss Awareness Week. But who sets the agenda for that? Is that a collaborative decision between all of the Baby Loss Awareness Week organisations? It is because you have several meetings throughout the year and you can start a theme. A theme will start to emerge. So my first year, uh, 2020, was obviously COVID uh, year. And we'd heard those awful stories of women having to go to appointments without 
without a supportive partner. And I know firsthand, if I'd had to go through what I'd gone through without my husband there, I think um, the grieving for a, for a lost baby is bad enough. But having to do that by yourself, I don't. And, and also for the for the partner not being able to support, I don't know how they would cope with that as well. So there's a lot of families that ha- that had gone through that. So that was that was that was the theme that year. And this year, um, we are hoping to talk about the women's health strategy that's come out this year. And we've had the Ockenden report and maternity safety report that came out from the health select committee report. So lots of different landmark reports that have pointed to holes in maternity safety and recommendations that we think we need to call for. And so that will be the theme for this year, namely staffing levels. I think that's probably the key one. You know, we're looking for government to fund 2,000 more midwives and 500 more obstetricians. And if we can, as a collective, start to call for that, that's that's when you start to make some real change. And the outcome in the in an ideal world, what 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 is the outcome of the debate? Is it real change? It is real change because in monetary terms, these are fairly simple asks for government to give, but it's all public money. So it has to be spent very wisely. Now, if I as a single MP or SANS as a single charity went to government and said, actually, this is what we need, then they would listen. Of course, they would listen, but then they would have to go in, look for the evidence, et cetera, et cetera. If as a collective, we all say the same thing, that's how you make real change in Parliament. You talk to people in corridors. I know it sounds really old fashioned now, but you talk to people in corridors, you talk to people in lobbies, you talk to people in the tea rooms and you know the cafes and whatnot, and you see the same faces and build coalitions of people. So that's not just the all-party group for baby loss, which actually has an awful lot of respect in Parliament, but it, you also connect with other all-party groups. So, for example, I also co-chair the Women's Health All-Party Group. You've also got the Maternity All-Party Group, and there are various others. And you all start calling for the same thing at the same time. You make alliances with the select committee members who are also across all parties, and you start to have a collective voice. And then you could do this two ways. If a, if a piece of legislation where you think an amendment might be work. You can get cross-party support for an amendment to a piece of legislation, or more likely, you can get something in the spending review or or however departments get their budgets allocated and you ask for that then. So there's lots of different mechanisms that you can use. And being a new MP, I'm still learning this, but hopefully we're starting to be effective. And how can we as individuals get involved? The best thing that people can do is is write to their MP. So you'll you know you you can get involved with local charities. So I know that Sands has got a presence all around the, the country. So I mentioned that club, didn't I? So nobody really wants to be part of this club. But I have to say, when you when you do become a member of this club and you lose a baby, um, the support out there is absolutely phenomenal. You just need to know how to get to it. And if you've if you've had engagement with your health professionals, hopefully they will provide you with all this information. And Sands was a really good example of where you can get real life help. Um, lots of lots of literature on how to help people in your families, but also um, how to access um, bereavement counselling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and Someone like Sands, a charity like Sands, might do a, an organised mail out to people who they've had contact with to help to encourage them to contact their MP. But actually, everybody knows that they have an MP. It's just a matter of finding them and then just raising that subject with them. Um, so just dropping them an email and saying, this is important to me. Um, how can you help me? And the more people that do that, the groundswell of, of opinion will change. And I think, you know, if you have two people that email an MP every week, that's one thing. But if you have a hundred people in a constituency that email on the same subject, your MP will sit up and listen. Absolutely, they will. I think that's a really interesting point because I think quite often perhaps it's easy to see that politics is something that happens elsewhere with other people and perhaps on an individual level, there isn't a lot that can be done to make these big 
changes that could actually change the outcome of pregnancy and of birth for for so many people and babies. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot you can do. I mean, so an MP has a lot of functions, but one of the main functions, one of the most enjoyable functions that I have as a local constituency MP is your constituency surgery. You you have the right to uh, to ask for an appointment, a face-to-face appointment with your local MP, wherever you are in the country, whatever party they are. And uh, you, an MP is your representative. So they should, if they're a good constituency MP, make sure that they do meet with you. And I, it's one of the best parts of the job for me. You get to meet people on, and you hear you know, all of life is in your constituency surgeries and you hear stories, uh, some of which are just heart rendering, not just on baby loss, but on all sorts of things. And you realise what people are living with. And from those meetings, you can then start to work out how you're going to help that constituent. And that is what you want to do. That's what you're in it for in the first place. Um, So again, it could be your individual case. So for example, everything went as well as it could, as could be expected in my case. I was very well looked after and you know, tragic as it was, I cannot fault the Royal Cornwall Hospital in uh, in Truro at all. They did a brilliant job. Great, that's great, but somebody else could have a completely different experience in a different part of the country, and actually, that's a, that's a different issue. You know, um, but that's still important. As a constituency MP, you can help them get answers from the hospital if if things did go wrong at their local hospital. You can absolutely do that. But actually, if it's a more general point, i.e. I was very well looked after, for example, my husband was never offered any bereavement counselling. If that sort of thing comes up, then that is a general policy area that we can start to change. But unless we hear the real life stories from families of what went well and what didn't go well, we'll never know what the problems are in order to be able to change them. So don't forget, we've got the women's health strategy that was announced in the summer. And to lead up to that, we had a consultation, government put out a consultation, which was answered by over 100,000 people, which is huge for a government consultation. Uh, That's how much women's health means to it. And and maternity safety is a huge, huge part of that. So, you know, look out for all of those sorts of things as well. I think it's important, but total, totally engagement with your local MP. They will be able to advise you where to look for more information and also to help you with issues that that, you know, if, if, if you've gone through this experience, then they can help with your specific case if you need it as well. So for Baby Loss Awareness Week this year, SANS is asking for people to email MPs and share the names of their babies who have passed and to ask MPs to share those names on social media and share their support on social media for Baby Loss Awareness Week. What kind of a difference would that make to you as an MP to receive those sorts of messages? Well, I'm a bit skewed on this because I react very well, obviously, to anything that comes in in this area because of my own experience and because of the work I do. But I would expect from my colleagues, knowing my colleagues as I do, that they would all want to help those families. Baby Loss Awareness Week has been getting more and more coverage every year, actually. And I think it's important that that happens because the main thing that we're trying to do is break down this taboo. It's, it's as I mentioned earlier, having to birth a baby that you know is not going to survive is one of the most terrifying and difficult experiences that anybody is going to go through. So therefore, people don't want to talk about it because it's scary and it's horrible. But actually, we need to talk about it. And the most powerful thing you can do to somebody that you know, or somebody that's asked you is to talk about that baby and give it a name. Because that baby then is a real person in this world. And it's so important to a, to a grieving family to hear that, whether it's from people around them who know them personally, or from their local MP, Anybody that mentions your baby's name, and by the way, if you're going to do this, give them the surname as well, because, you know, I I talk about baby Lily, but the most powerful thing that happened to me, I think, was in, in the October, before I knew I was going to become an MP of 2019, I went to the Baby Loss Awareness Week service in Truro. 
with my husband just because we wanted to go. And there was a book of remembrance there. And I looked at Lily's date and there she was, Lily McCrory. And next to her name was the name of the baby that had been next door in the Daisy Suite the same day, little boy. And I'd been okay and I'd held it together until I read her name written down by somebody else in a book because she didn't have a birth certificate. She didn't have a death certificate. That meant that she was she was real. She she had existed. And I think that's the most powerful message that an MP reading out those names can can give to those families that your baby existed and your baby was important and your baby's name is now recorded. That recognition is so important, isn't it? That seeing your baby's name written down in full and hearing it spoken out loud as well. I mean, it reminds me of the um, debate that Jess Phillips does with women who've died as well and hearing those women's names. And I think just having names in the public domain and recognised in Parliament is is so powerful for people. Absolutely. And uh, it's difficult, um, but it, it is so, so important. And we do shy away from it because it's emotional and it's scary, but we shouldn't because these little babies are part of our lives. And as brief as they were with us, I know, for example, that my baby kicked for a good few weeks before we we had to say goodbye. And, uh, you know, I have a lovely, a lovely memory sitting at Christmas time in a chair after sort of doing all the dinner and everything and sitting there all relaxed and feeling my lovely baby kicking. And I know that she she was quite happy and warm and snug in there and she was a real person. Now, that's my memory of her and that makes her real for me. And it, I think it's important that as a society, we start to recognise those babies as real people and, yeah, keep their memories alive. So one of the most important things we do um, as part of our memory boxes is to have special um, certificates of birth and baby details books, because when you have a baby that you take home and people come and say hello to the baby and um, you write down all those special memories, it's different when your baby's died. And one of the things we really wanted to do is to recognise that, but to give bereaved parents the opportunity to write down those details, to have a certificate that they can frame. Official stillbirth certificates are not particularly beautiful um, and very stark and very official. So we've created certificates of birth that look beautiful that you can frame alongside your other certificates and em- embroidered name things that you have created for for babies that you bring home. So that was one of the things we felt was really important when we updated the Sands Memory Box was to have those opportunities for parents to write things down. And it's just another way of babies being seen and recognised and being real to other people as well as the parents and the immediate family. It's so important because that was one of the things that was really stark when it happened to us was that, um, you know, my baby was born at 21 weeks um, in the end. And it's before that 24 week flip over. So if if baby had been born after 24 weeks, then you have a stillborn certificate and they are on on an official register. And I remember thinking, it's that grey area, isn't it, between them being part of you and being their own person. And I don't think we've necessarily got that right yet. I don't, I'm not suggesting we, we have to do any official legislative changes on that, but as a society, um, and it has to be up to the family in the end of the day, doesn't it? How they want their baby recognised. And, you know, you wouldn't want government to prescribe what that should look like, but offering solutions like that is is actually really important and can really help fa- families, actually. 
we were talking about the figures and the numbers of babies who've, who've died and, and a bit about the sort of differences around the UK, but also the differences, particularly for black and black British um, parents and also South Asian families and the inequalities in those figures and the increased risk that those families are at and your views around that really and, and how we can address that. The all-party group has done quite a bit of work on this and um, I mean the, the figures are scary. There are all sorts of things that go along with that and you know a lot of it is to do with socioeconomic deprivation and all of the lifestyle obstacles that go along with, with that as well. So for example my personal campaign if I have one is for continuity of carer. I would like to see every woman in the UK have the same midwife or couple of midwives throughout seen throughout their pregnancy. This is being trialed in in areas where there is greatest ethnic diversity and they are seeing results. Now it's not just a case of of looking after that woman physically for the pregnancy. There are all sorts of other things that you can look out for. It's very difficult for midwifery teams to be able to to do that in practice, but certainly that's something that I'm quite passionate about and I would like to see because the, the evidence is there that it does help. I think that will make a huge difference, especially because, you know, you're at your most vulnerable when you are pregnant. And to have to see so many different people within your journey, you you lose that ability to build up a rapport and a relationship and to feel comfortable and secure with that person. Absolutely. And comfortable and secure is the main is is absolutely the thing. You are at your most vulnerable when you're pregnant. And for example, if English is not your first language, you often rely on husbands or children to to translate for you. So we know that there are areas of the country where this is very prevalent. And so they're starting to introduce translators into surgeries now. But we need to do more of this innovative stuff so that women of all ethnic uh, backgrounds have the same opportunity to confidential and safe environment. You know, if you're if you're being coerced or there is violence in your home or any kind of abuse in your home and the only person that can translate for you is your perpetrator, your husband, for example, somebody else in the household, you just must be living in fear. And I think thinking about that continuity in terms of when the worst does happen, we know that the parents, the mother is the person that has got that continuous account of what has happened throughout pregnancy and when the baby has died. And if we're thinking about reviews and investigations into why a baby has died and making sure that every baby death is reviewed, listening to parents and listening to mothers is so crucial in that just to make sure that we get that continuous story, I suppose, of what's happened during the pregnancy. Absolutely. And so, you know, pregnancies are as different as people are and uh, people's journeys are completely different. So, you know, lots of things spinning around in my head at the moment. We we didn't go on to have another pregnancy. We decided that was probably our last one and we wouldn't do any more. But often this happens, something like this can happen and it's the very first pregnancy. One of the reasons we didn't uh, was partly because I was getting on a bit, but we probably would have gone for it. But we were just terrified. We were absolutely terrified of having to go through that experience again. And I know that people would have been compassionate. And I asked the question, how do we know this isn't going to happen again? And the the closest they could give us was a a test at 16 weeks. And I said, well, I'm just going to have to go through the same thing again. And we just, we just, we just didn't want to do that. So, so we didn't. Now that's my experience. But certainly, if you've been through three miscarriages, you are going to be terrified of becoming pregnant again. There's no two ways about it. And you do not want to have to keep repeating your story to every single health professional that you see. You want somebody who understands where you've been 
it's it's that holistic approach. I know this is something that um, we want to see as part of a wider women's health strategy, a holistic approach. And I think we need to also, you know, include maternity safety, maternity services in that. I think we need to include it in all healthcare, if I'm perfectly honest. But, I, you know, I think you've got to understand what's going on in a household. You've got to understand what's going on for other parts of, of, of a woman's health to understand what else might be happening and why pregnancy loss might might have. Sometimes there is no rhyme or reason, but might have happened. But I'm quite old fashioned and traditional. So this would have happened when you had a family doctor back in the day, because you would have seen the same person each time. But obviously now it's a bit different. We live much more of a transient lifestyle, much more of a transient society. Certainly in, in the inner city areas, it's much more transient. You get slightly more familiar faces when you're out in the sticks like I am, which is which is brilliant. <laughs> That's all we have time for on this episode. But if you need more information on anything we've spoken about, then you can find that in the show notes. Coming up on next week's episode, we wanted to talk about something a little bit different. And that is about taking care of yourself when you're trying to deal with all of the grief, because it's really hard. And it's quite often the absolute last thing that we do. And instead, we spend that time and those early days and for some of us a lot longer than that really being quite hard on ourselves and whether that is feeling guilty for things whether that is blaming ourselves and we do this at a time when really we need to somehow find a way to offer ourselves some kindness and I think it's it's really valuable when you're feeling like your body's let you down or you know you're feeling really guilty as you say and berating yourself there are things that you can do that will just slowly start to rebuild your confidence in your body and in your mind and and in yourself in learning to be that different person and inhabit that different world that you find yourself in. Absolutely. So we like to end each episode with a hope for the future. So this is MP Sherilyn McCrory's hope. My hope for the future is that we have a greater understanding of all types of baby loss because there are so many different reasons why babies are lost and they're not all the same and often they get grouped together so I think it's important that we open the conversation that families don't feel frightened to talk about it I think that we're not talking about this enough yet I think we're doing better than we used to but I think it's important that we talk about it more I think um, I would like to see more research into why later pregnancy losses happen later than mine mine was a very straightforward case and I I was able to have closure on why that happened but often if a baby stops moving at 38 weeks that baby is tragically lost often mum and family will not ever know the reason why and we've got to do better at that we've got to understand why so we can put in place better monitoring better care so that we can save more of these babies Voices of Baby Loss is an under the mast creative audio production